On our first new episode of 2021, we discuss what we know so far about the crash of Sriwijaya Air Flight 182. We also look back at the final numbers for 2020. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Urbanowitz, and hello, Ian. Welcome to episode 102, version 2.0. Version 2.0. It's 100% better than version 1.0. Now, much less click track. Yes, we had a bit of an issue with our first attempt at our first recording of the year 2021. My export had some issues, which we will promptly sack whoever is in charge of that, being me, I guess, and give another shot at the first episode of 2021. There you go. But the bright side for us, we get to talk about the Norwegian news. So we'll spoiler uh, alert. We'll get to we'll, it. Uh, we'll get to that a little bit later in in the show. That will come um, in the bad news section of this yes, episode. Yes, which is really most of the episode. But there's that. How was your your month away from the podcast? Fine. I haven't left my apartment in about two weeks, more than two weeks, I think. Played a lot of video games. Sat on the couch a bunch. Uh, didn't get sick, so that's good. That's good. That's uh, those are all good things. I, uh, and did, I did Santa visit uh, the family for you? It, it yeah he he stopped by we we were tracking him that was a lot of fun this year so th- thanks to everyone who who followed along with, with Santa on the site or, or in the app I know uh, we had some some people write in and, and say that they enjoyed that and it was a lot of fun and I had my kids doing it so we we enjoyed that and, and Santa was good to everybody and we have built oh so many Legos. Oh, oh, so many Legos. So, and I haven't stepped on any yet. So, I'm counting that as a win. Soon, soon, <laughs> it'll happen soon. I, I, Jason, I sent you the picture of this, and perhaps we can put it in the show notes because why not? It's uh, impressive. I built a Yak Forty out of Legos, <laughs> as one does. As one does. So, uh, yeah. So, all all things all all things good, and and everyone's doing well here. And I'm glad to to hear that that you are are doing well and. So we're starting the new year off with our health and hopefully keeping it and and building on that as the year goes by. Unfortunately, for the aviation industry, we start 2021 much the same way that we started uh, 2020, and that is with a crash. Different circumstances where we're one year, one year and a week really out from the downing of Ukraine uh, International Airlines Flight 752 in Tehran that was shot down by by missiles there. We don't have uh, any real updates on the investigation there. We, we've talked about that before, and and as those come out, we'll we'll bring that back up in the podcast. But this year, we begin the year with the cla- the the crash of uh, Sujaya Air Flight 182, uh, which crashed shortly after takeoff from Jakarta. We don't know a lot, but here's what we do know. Four minutes after takeoff from Jakarta, the, the aircraft crashed after reaching a, a maximum altitude of 10,900 feet. And from 10,900 feet, it descended down into the water in in roughly 26 seconds. So whatever happened, happened very quickly. 
Yeah, this, this aircraft, it, it was just not good. The the aircraft had actually been grounded because of uh, COVID restrictions and minimization of, of, of flights for quite a number of months. It was grounded way back in March 2020, and I don't believe its first test flight was, was until December 18th, and then it had been operating daily since then up until the, the fatal accident. It was a 737-500, so it's not a MAX. It has nothing to do with MCAS or anything like that. It's not even an NG. It's a 73-500, so it predates. It's two it's generations. A it's yeah. a classic. It's two generations behind the MAX. I, I would say it's a reliable aircraft. It is not known at, at this point in time to have any fatal flaws, it certainly had issues back in the day when it was a new aircraft, but those have all since been resolved. Whatever happened to this aircraft, it happened suddenly, it happened violently, and and we just we don't know. The descent into the ocean, as Ian said, or into the sea was, was dramatically fast in less than 30 seconds between the time that, that the descent started and the impact into the sea, which is just absolutely frightening. So since the accident had occurred, we have seen the flight data recorder recovered. Indonesia po- uh, posted a video of, of the recovery efforts of the data on that device. So hopefully they're able to do a preliminary readout rather quickly. Uh, the search for the flight, uh, the cockpit voice recorder is ongoing. They, they think they have that located and they just need to scoop that up. Hopefully that will provide us some more insight into what happened we also have some information that uh, the flight crew possibly deviated from the, the route. It turned to the west instead of the eastbound track expected. Uh, air traffic controllers tried twice to question the crew as to what was going on, but the crew did not respond, probably because they were busy trying to fly and recover the aircraft. And that's about all we know right now. Yeah. One of the things that has has made kind of an analysis of, of, of this flight, the, a preliminary analysis of this flight from, from our data, uh, at least possible, is that while the aircraft was grounded, because they didn't need to be flying this plane, they actually put it through through maintenance and upgraded the transponder from just a pure mode S transponder up to, to ADS-B. So before you know, March or, or March and before, uh, th- this flight was tracked by, this aircraft was tracked by MLAT. And so in Indonesia, our MLAT is is very, very tricky uh, at lower levels because the terrain is so varied. I mean, you, you, you need four receivers to see the, the aircraft at the same time in order to calculate the, the position of the aircraft. And so when you, you're dealing with mountainous jungle terrain and, and poor line of sight and things like that. It's very difficult. So we often only have MLAT above roughly 20,000 feet in, in a lot of places. And so in October, at, or by October, uh, when the aircraft began to be powered on again, we were seeing ground coverage in, in Surabaya. So that was you know kind of a, a, an upgrade there to, to the ADS-B transponder. So that allowed us to, to actually track this flight at all, because without that, we, we probably would not have had had any data on this flight at all. So that's uh, the, one of the, I mean, you know, huge benefits of, of installing ADSB. Yeah, that, that's definitely a, a positive into the investigation. Uh, thankfully, they were able to find the, the flight data recorder, so they may not really need to truly rely on the ADSB output, but it, it's always something good for investigators to have, of course. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, not even for an investigation standpoint, you know, for, for the, the crash investigation standpoint, just, you know, uh, knowing where the aircraft was. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it highlights the, the benefit of having that instantaneous positional information, certainly is, is something to, to, to be helpful about. But, you know, as things progress, uh, hopefully the, the flight data recorder is read out quickly and, and there's some information there that is, is helpful to the investigators and, and we find out what was happening and, and how it happened and, and we'll get a full report and obviously we'll, we'll come back to this when we do know more. But, uh, but that's where, where things stand with, with that right now. Let's shift gears and talk about other terrible things. But the, these are terrible things generally because we have our first uh, industry-wide COVID update of 2021. It being 2021, obviously, everything is better now. The, the year changed over. You know, 2020 was terrible. 2021 starts off and everything's great. Right, Jason? Nope. It was worth a shot. It yeah, was I, it, was a, it was a good attempt, but it, it's no. Okay. Well- Explain, please. <laughs> oh, where do we even start? Yeah, so we've got an ongoing pandemic. Then we had, you know, travel restrictions over the past 9 months, various places and things like that, and then come December, we had a new variant or or, or I don't know, strains the right word, but we a new variant of COVID that is up to 70 times more infectious. Super. Uh, yeah, exactly exactly what we needed, right? So, that led to the imposition of additional travel restrictions. So now we've got and, and this new strain was, you know, kind of found in in the UK. So, immediately or or near immediately, flights from the UK to other places had restrictions put on them. Some were banned outright. Some said, well, now you need a test and you need to quarantine. Some said you need to quarantine. Some said you can come and everything's fine. Yeah, that is still the case here in the US, unfortunately. The carts being put out before the horse, I guess, at at this point, because the CDC finally caved and said international travelers into the US must prove a COVID negative test. But when does that go into effect again? Well, it being the middle of January, I believe they're putting it into immediate effect, right? Uh, no. Oh, right. They're going to wait two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Super. Two weeks from now, I think, yeah. even. So it, it's not great. Our response here has been quite pathetic. At least in New York, Governor Cuomo had uh, forced the airline's hand into requiring passengers flying into New York, which I guess would really just be JFK to have a negative COVID test, but that doesn't really look at passengers flying into Newark with United or the other airlines flying to Newark. So that's only a half measure, but at least that was an attempt. But yeah, I'm going to give this rant again since we lost the initial recording, but I think that when all is said and done and and COVID is no longer a pandemic, but is almost certainly likely to be an endemic, we as an industry, the aviation industry needs to take a a hard and close look back at itself and think about the role it played in spreading COVID from place to place and eventually around the world. You can 
put all of the protective measures in place you want, such as like sanitizing the aircraft and talk up the HEPA filters that already are on board the aircraft that you didn't actually do. You're just now talking about it. But there's going to have to be a real discussion and focus look back on what role did aviation play in spreading of COVID? And I know John Ostrauer has been particularly keen on pointing this out, that the the UK variant did not walk from the UK to Texas and New York and, and the other places it's been spotted. It was brought here by someone on an airplane who probably didn't know they had COVID. But since there was no testing requirement, no legitimate quarantine restriction, it was free to spread around the world. So hopefully we will learn lessons from COVID and we can prevent whatever comes next, but I am not hopeful that's the case. Yeah. I mean, and and given some of the things that have happened this week with the kind of show and tell for health measures uh, that airlines have have brought out, I think doesn't doesn't lend itself to to hope that a proper reflection upon the industry's role in in a pandemic and and that's not to say it's just this pandemic i mean there will be another one and so preparing for how to handle that i think is you know something that will definitely need to be addressed as well so let's talk about where we are now as far as traffic is concerned and and some of the things that are still affecting not only the industry but drill down a, a little bit more one of the things that that's still happening that has changed a little bit are the FAA facility closures. Those have been going on for months uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, but now some of the closures have started to take place during the day. So you're seeing a, a larger effect on the kind of traffic in the area. And, and so for instance, since the, the first of the year, Jacksonville Center has closed twice. Uh, and, and that's really done a number on flights to to and from Florida, uh, which has remained very busy throughout all of this. And Fort Worth Center closed uh, once in, in the middle of the day, and that affected both Americans Hub at uh, at DFW and the Southwest, uh, not a hub hub uh, in Dallas as well. So. Uh, yeah, as we were recording yesterday, the Jacksonville Center was actually closed for COVID cleaning. And this is far from the first time, and it's probably far from the last time. And of course, this is naturally going to become more of a problem as COVID cases have spiked. It is just that much more probable that uh, a controller in one of these centers, either in an airport tower or in a Tracon facility, is going to test positive. And that facility will have to close down for some number of hours to be cleaned. Thankfully, they seem to have worked this down to a science to minimize the absolute time that those facilities have to be closed. It's not like in the very early days where uh, there was a confirmed positive case in Chicago Midway, and that airport was closed for upwards of a day, I think. Well, yeah, yeah the, the, the airport was closed because the, the case was in the, the tower. It, it didn't close the, the whole airport because of a case in the airport. But um, yeah, it, it was it was a length of time. I mean, it, now we're, we're down to you know, a few hours. And even then, it, you know, they, they say, we're, well, it's going to be closed for, for three hours. And then they say, okay, well, it only took you know, two or, or something like that. So they've, they've definitely improved upon their cleaning measures and things like that to, uh, to, to get things back up and running as quickly as they possibly can. Yeah, that, that's part, I guess, in 
because the cleaning procedures have just been solidified over the months and almost year at this point that they know exactly what to do. And our understanding of COVID has advanced to the point that we know that surface transmission really isn't a thing or the primary concern. So I guess they go in there, they spray down the the areas that the uh, person who tested positive would have touched or would have been around and then reopened. You don't need to fully fog the entire center. It's just, that's not how we, how it works. Right. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, an, an evolution of the understanding of how this particular virus is spread. Imagine that. Weird. I know. So for the full year, 2020, commercial traffic was down 42%. The, the number of flights that is. Waiting on full year passenger numbers, I think is, is really going to be the, the shocking figure. Because, you know, as we've seen, there were a number of flights that are operated purely based on on cargo alone I mean, for ba- passenger aircraft basing you know flying cargo alone but yeah c- total commercial traffic down 42% the lowest day of the year was the 12th of april where we were down just above 25,000 daily flights now back up and and bumping around the 70,000 flights per day mark for kind of a historical perspective we're usually seeing you know, well over a hundred thousand daily commercial flights. So certainly still down down uh, at the end of December thirty six and a half percent. So not down as far as I expected, to be perfectly honest. But but that's where we are. Yeah, and it's certainly down in some regions more than others. I know here in New York, uh, capacity is down to like maybe twenty percent of what it once was, since so much of the traffic here is international. But meanwhile, in, in China, I assume uh, traffic is back up to where it started, or even above, isn't it? Yeah, it, by the end of the year, domestic traffic in China was above finished the year in 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 positive territory. They recovered rather quickly and increased their flying in in 2020 above 2019. I think they ended up 100 104 percent or so, four four percent above 2019 levels. So yeah, I mean it's and their their international traffic is recovering more quickly, obviously, than elsewhere, but but still pretty far down. Um, yeah. But yeah, domestic traffic in China is is back up. So now we come to uh, the news that broke after we initially recorded, but now that we get our second chance, we actually get to talk about it. Jason, what happened? Well, we talked about this somewhat recently, but now it has become a reality. Norwegian Air has officially thrown in the towel on its long-haul transatlantic and, I guess, Asian, Asian flights. This was something that Norwegian has struggled with since day one. I don't think anyone is particularly surprised by this, but the airline will not at any point in the near future at least resume long-haul flying. It will return all of its 787s, both the 8s and 9s, to the leasing companies, and that's it. That, (laughs) That sucks. Yeah, none of this is surprising. And Norwegian has had... If you've listened to more than one episode of the podcast, you you know how rough Norwegian has had it. But they they couldn't make it work. I mean, even even outside of the issues they had with the aircraft, the model that they were operating with, the the long haul model, just it just wasn't working. And, and and no one's really been able to make the the long haul low cost model really work. 
And you know, you throw in a, a global pandemic that erases international travel demand, and I mean, this is the I think obvious result. Yeah. So we've talked about this before, and just to sum it up, Norwegian's troubles. It initially was starting up service to a, a few destinations. I, I think Bangkok and New York JFK with the seven eight seven dash eight. And those were way late being delivered from Boeing. So from day one, it started operations with wet lease aircraft from High Fly and and all sorts of other leasing companies that whatever aircraft they could scrounge up, be it an A340-300 or an A330 or even sometimes a 747, that's what you ended up on. Uh, once they finally got those aircraft, uh, the Rolls-Royce engine issues almost immediately sidelined those aircraft. So that wasn't good. None of those issues played well into the fact that Norwegian had an extremely aggressive high utilization schedule for their aircraft. So they had very minimal downtime. If this happened to me on, on my flight out to uh, the Flight Radar 24 annual Christmas gathering, if an aircraft takes a two-hour delay on Monday, it's probably still going to be dealing with that two-hour delay Wednesday and into Thursday because there's virtually no time to make up that delay. And it just wreaked havoc with its operations. So it was never truly a well-thought-out plan. On paper, it would have been great, but in reality, it just doesn't work that way, even with the newest state-of-the-art aircraft. But this really does, to me, spell the beginning of the end for low-cost, long-haul flying, and we're all literally going to be paying for this failure. Yeah, I, I think... Well, <laughs> I see what mm -hmm. you did. I think there's there's two things here. One, you're right in the short term. Two, I hope you're wrong in the medium to long term. And and, and let me let me explain what I'm, what I'm thinking about here. We've talked about long haul low cost not being a great model and, and that's you know certainly true on the wide body but thinking about this from an aircraft utilization per perspective and and the ability for airlines to perhaps bring in a a smaller long haul low cost aircraft let's say let's call it an A321LR or an A321XLR uh, that hasn't even hit the market yet. I mean, I think that is going to open up a lot of opportunities for long haul, low cost. Not obviously not ultra long haul, low cost, but I don't think we've really seen much of that, you know, so far anyway. So I, I think that you know, in, in the short term, certainly legacy carriers are going to benefit from from Norwegian's exit. Exactly. But Nor Norwegian's pricing, I mean, it, it just wasn't sustainable. No, it wasn't sustainable, but also if long-haul low-cost is going to be operated by narrow-body aircraft, that, that's physically constrained, constrains the number of passengers you can have on board to 180, maybe 200 passengers if you really pack them in, whereas Norwegian was operating a wide-body aircraft, which could hold hundreds of passengers relatively comfortably, I might add. The premium product on Norwegian was really, I think, the world's best premium economy product, and the economy product was was fine. I, I don't think most passengers on board that aircraft would be able to tell the difference between a Norwegian 787 economy seat and a United 787 economy seat, uh, aside from maybe the the meal and, and drink service where you had to pay on Norwegian. So I'm, 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 I'm sad to sure see it. I'm not sure if it says more about Norwegian or if it says more about United. Well, it was 
Norwegian was a, an odd case of a of kind of a, a fully featured uh, low cost carrier. Every seat on board at seven eight sevens had uh, seatback screens with with movies. They they were in the process of installing free Wi Fi. I might add, so that actually surpasses all other airlines doing the transatlantic routes, except maybe uh, La Compagnie, which. Uh, Somebody should check in on them since their only routes don't work anymore. But they had a lot of pluses that separated them from the rest of the pack. And even over the legacy carriers, there were some additional perks and features. Yeah, I think that they were drivers of a lot of good things. They just couldn't make it work, both through a model of their own and then all of the other stuff that happened to them. So hopefully their, their refocus on kind of intra-European low cost is is something that they'll find success with. Moving on. Moving on. So it snowed in Madrid. A lot. A, a lot. lot. And, and just kept coming. And, I, and Madrid's probably not the kind of place that's suited for a lot of snow, is it? I mean, it didn't seem like they were prepared to remove all of the snow that fell on the airport. Hence, the airport was closed for days. Not hours, days. And I think some of the runways are still covered in snow. Yeah, snow can can sneak up on you, get the best of you. Even here in New York, I think we uh, we have covered a number of times where it just keeps snowing and, and airports can't keep up with it because windy conditions blow the snow right back on the runway and other things happen. And was that, was that is not the snow? kind of place you expect it, is it? That no, it was, the New York snowstorm was that was that twenty nineteen or twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen? I think that was twenty twenty. Early 2018, like January wow. 2018, yeah, it was, where it was, uh, was, was closed. Like like New Year's snow, snow, yeah. But yeah, Ma- Madrid, I mean, just a lot of snow fell in pretty much all at once, and they, they just could not keep up. So they closed the airport for a couple of days. Uh, things are starting to get back to normal ish, but still, still not great. I mean, I, I guess the obvious you know, benefit here is that traffic is so much lower now that it's easier to recover to what is currently normal. But I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Now but there yeah, was one flight that was able to sneak out, wasn't there? Well, I mean, when you're Real Madrid, you, you have to fly. Get uh, out the snowplow, get Spain's only snowplow out on the runway. They have got to go. <laughs> That's pretty much what happened. So yeah, I mean, it's quite the, quite the mess there, but, uh, but we'll, we'll, post a link to i think some of the satellite photography really shows you know the, the coverage of uh, of what happened um, so we'll, we'll toss a, a link in the show notes there yeah snow is a snow will get you there's some regions in japan right now in the north that are also getting some tremendous oh, yeah, yeah. amount of snow uh feet multiple feet of snow and some of the airports in the north of japan haven't had flights operating for for days on end that is a place you do expect to see snow and even there it was so overwhelming they just they couldn't keep up. There's like a, a subgenre of YouTube videos of Japanese snow clearance that I thoroughly enjoy because I, I just find them so kind of enticing or entrancing where the, they, they go up and they've got like eight feet of snow on a roof and they, they just go hit it with a stick and then run. I saw that too. It's, it's, it's amazing. I, I love watching that. Just so, don't be standing uh, in the wrong place. No, you definitely don't want to be standing in the wrong place. Let's talk about some good news. Okay. Uh, I like good there, news. There, there is a little bit. So and it's in, a big one. 
It, it, it is a big one. Yeah, yeah. In June of 2017, Qatar's neighbors, uh, including Bahrain, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and uh, not a neighbor, but uh, in the neighborhood, Egypt, blockaded Qatar and cut off uh, flights to and from Qatar, but also stopped the access for Qatari registered aircraft. So Qatar Airways basically stopped their access to their airspace. What this did is it forced Qatar Airways flights to fly around these countries, adding in some cases up to four and a half hours of flight time to some of the flights from Doha to points south and west. Um, So to South America, to Southwest Africa, those flights ended up taking up to four and a half hours longer than they had previously. That blockade has ended and flights are now returning, Qatar Airways flights are now returning to their their previous uh, more efficient routings and flights between uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar have resumed. I think UAE and Qatar is coming soon. So, so things are just kind of resolved themselves there. Yeah, that just kind of happened at a left field seemingly and, and overnight. And it actually that took about a day or two after the news hit for uh, Qatar to actually adjust it, its flight routings. But one of the the flights, in particularly, I was tracking was Lagos to or Lagos to Doha, which that particular flight took a, a ridiculous route of going from uh, Nigeria all the way north into uh, Europe, uh, flying over a Greek airspace, I believe, and then back down into Doha. That flight initially on the detour route took eight hours twenty two minutes. The first flight of the uh, direct routing, which is pretty much a straight line from point to point, was six hours and ten minutes. It was scheduled to arrive at six fifteen a.m. Actually, ended up landing at three forty two a.m. Since uh, Qatar has not had a chance to actually adjust its schedule, so they've got flights coming in hours and hours and hours ahead of their their scheduled time, which I guess is nice or, or maybe not. I, I don't know how that works on an airport logistics. Uh, scheme if you have flights coming in three, four hours before they're supposed to. I I think in normal times, that would probably be a much bigger issue than it is now, but not great. I mean, who who likes landing at 345 in the morning? Yeah, that, that's a bit brutal. Like, where do you go? What do you do? Um, sorry, but your four hour layover just became half a day. Yeah. Good, good luck. So th- that's that's all the good news we have. No. There, oh, I have more bad news. Bad news just breaking yeah. right now. The UK to ban all arrivals from South American countries, including Portugal, over Brazil coronavirus strain starting this Friday. So, uh, yay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's <laughs> take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll do our first 737 MAX update of the year. And we'll also get into orders and deliveries from the past year and see where where we stand with who's retiring things and who's introducing new aircraft. More retirees coming and a, and a few new aircraft. So we have that to look forward to at least. Uh, so we'll, we'll be back right after a quick break. Welcome back. We are now ready for our first 737 MAX update of the year, and it is a big one. Yeah, uh, it's a doozy. 
<laughs> and not re- not relating to the aircraft itself, actually. No. Not even related to the aircraft itself. Let, let's get the aircraft stuff out of the way first. We've got American Airlines, or Goal was the first, American, Copa, and I'm missing a fourth here. Uh, in the air right now, we you should see Aeromexico. Aeromexico, Goal. that is the, the fourth there, way. Yeah. Yep. So those are the four airlines that have the the MAX back in service. I believe United is set to begin service next month. Early next month, and, and then we should uh, see Air Canada shortly as well, well. and then uh, and WestJet. So really, all uh, all you know, Western Hemisphere flying so far. Given that the aircraft isn't approved for service anywhere else, so that is the quick aircraft update. But that's not really what we're here to talk about. First things first. The press release from the United States Department of Justice says Boeing charged with 737 MAX fraud conspiracy and agrees to pay over $2.5 billion. Yeah, I saw that headline and, and gasped at the, the number of $2.5 billion. That is a hell of a payout. Then you start to read the details and I started to get mad. Yeah, the Jason in, in our in our previous discussions about this you had mentioned that it it seems unjust or or that, that justice may not have been served yes that is exactly the case in this deferred prosecution agreement um, we'll get into the details of what that means but the title of deferred prosecution agreement should probably be a big giveaway exactly so the Boeing and the uh, Department of Justice, I almost said FAA, but that's not the case. Boeing and the Department of Justice entered into a deferred prosecution agreement on a conspiracy charge to defraud the FAA in connection with the 737 MAXs and the development and certification of MCAS. So this relates to what they're calling a, a criminal conspiracy of the 737 MAX chief chief technical pilot and the emails that they sent removing MCAS from uh, the list of, of things that needed to be approved by the FAA. That was their you know, alleged criminal conduct. Boeing entered into this deferred prosecution agreement, which basically means that Boeing will pay some money. And if they keep their nose clean for a couple years, they will the, the case will be dismissed. And $2.5 billion sounds like a lot of money, but Boeing will pay a total criminal monetary amount of over $2.5 billion. Oh, okay. Composed of a criminal monetary penalty of $243.6 million, compensation payments to Boeing 737 MAX airline customers of $1.77 billion, and the establishment of a $500 million crash victim beneficiaries fund to compensate heirs, relatives, and other people associated or related to the 346 passengers who died in the two max crashes. So when you break those numbers down, the feelings towards this agreement change, In at least in my mind. Yeah, Boeing has uh, I would say much the- this go away. And $243.6 million you can buy a really entry level Boeing airplane with that amount of money. Yeah, I think the it is two seven three maxes that that you could buy up with that amount. 
So I'm disappointed that the Department of Justice would put out such a deceptive headline like that. I'd expect that more from Boeing directly rather than the DOJ framing it like that. It's quite disappointing. At least there is the the 500 million that will go into a, the the family compensation fund, which is great. But this is essentially Boeing taking out its its checkbook and paying its way out of any criminal charges. And it's not exactly a huge sum of money. So those responsible for the absolutely toxic corporate culture at Boeing are off the hook here at this point. And and I, I don't like to say it, but I don't believe that the corporate culture at Boeing has actually changed. I think it is still toxic and not holding anyone responsible and, and really setting precedent that this will not be tolerated. It's not uh, an outcome that I wanted to see. Yeah, I, I think one of the you know the important thing to note here is that it it's not th- this charge isn't related to the overall development. It's not related to how everything happened. It's related specifically to the actions of, of basically a mid level technical pilot. Or, or, or senior technical pilot, but but mid level as far as the Boeing organization goes, th- this doesn't hold anyone at the top accountable. No, and, and those at the top of of Boeing now were there when the Max was being developed. The the current CEO of Boeing Aircraft was on the board of directors, so they they pulled a director from the board into the CEO position. He was there. He was okaying the decisions made at the highest level. And I, I don't see how you can change the corporate culture at a company like Boeing without someone new at the top of the food chain. It, it just, to me, it doesn't work that way. And Boeing ha- has put out some bullet points about how they, they claim they have reformed and how the corporate culture there has changed, but they, they really don't talk about it in depth. They won't provide anyone to any media outlets, including this very podcast to discuss what changes they're making to corporate culture. So how can we be sure they're actually making it? And I believe even just yesterday, Tim Clark, the CEO of Emirates or the outgoing CEO made the, the very same comments that I'm making right now, which actually I didn't see until after we recorded yesterday and I made this very similar rant. Um, he also believes that the corporate culture there probably has not changed enough and there has not been enough evidence of change there. And I am in full agreement with that statement. Yeah. I think it would be nice to see some some demonstrable results from Boeing uh, on that, you know, and some real concrete, this is exactly what we're doing and this is how we're going to change. I, I think the interesting thing just this week, the creation of the chief safety officer, how that wasn't already a thing. I was just going to say that. How does a company uh, like Boeing not have a chief safety officer? E- even if it wasn't a thing before, how did it take them this long to do it? Yeah, this uh, is exactly the, the kind of thing that, that just sticks out as further evidence that the culture there really probably hasn't changed substantially. And maybe they're getting going now since they've put someone in that position. That's good. But I remain unconvinced well, I, yeah, yeah. Well, well. As of now, I, I agree with you, and I hope that you are wrong, in short order, at least, or or are, are proven to be to have not enough faith, because you know things certainly need to uh, to to change. So the other large piece of of seven three seven Max news 
comes from a story that that our friend John Oshauer published early in the year. It's a long read. We will link to it, and I highly suggest that everyone takes the time to to read it over at the Air Current. So, one of the things that came out of the updating of the software, the updating of the MCAS software on the 737 MAX were test flights conducted by various authorities. And one of the test flights was conducted by the European European Union Aviation Safety Organization as part of their recertification of the aircraft. And after they conducted their test flights, the head of the organization made some interesting comments about the handling of the aircraft in that it didn't seem to to have the the characteristics that would create the necessity for MCAS in their test flights. And so that happened a few months ago. And then John's article came out earlier this week and goes in depth on the question, does the 737 MAX actually need MCAS? And well, there's, I guess, spoiler alert, there's no definitive answer. It's one of those things where all signs point to probably no. not. Yeah, this this was you had first brought this up to me, and uh, when you were reading the uh, the EASA bulletin, quite shocking. EASA said they they flew the Max in their test flights to its uh, really its envelope to the to the way beyond anything you would see in, in typical passenger service, and flat out said we did not see the conditions that Boeing said were in place that would facilitate the need for MCAS, which is very, very odd because in in Boeing's communications that we just discussed before that led to the addition of MCAS and its increasing control over the aircraft in cases where it was activated, they Boeing outright said that the, the handling characteristics of the aircraft were unacceptably poor in certain conditions which led to the development of MCAS. So we're in this odd place where we're led to draw a conclusion that maybe Boeing was too conservative in its flight testing and certification of the the MAX, which is really strange when you consider where we are now that maybe MCAS didn't need to be a thing at all. And and the point, I'll, I'll let you sum this up about the 7.5 and the 7.6 is particularly interesting if you want to talk about that real quick. Yeah. So the 757 and the 7.6.7 share a, a common type rating. There are, there are differences there, but they share a common type rating and they have you know pilots who can fly the 757 can fly the 7.6.7. And Boeing approached, during the development of the aircraft, Boeing approached the FAA for basically a, a approval of that setup for the pilots. And the FAA looked at the evidence and said, yes, that's fine. There are some differences that need to be compensated for and things like that. And and so if you read through John's article, which I, I really recommend everyone does to just, I mean, it's the kicker at the end is from the FAA administrator, Stephen Dixon, and you know, asking John, asking him, why didn't Boeing come to the FAA for a similar thing for the 737NG to 737 MAX? And he goes, I I have no idea. We'll never know. And that's really particularly interesting to me since the 7.5 and the 7.6 are two very different aircraft. They have many similarities, but the 7.5 is regarded as you know a hot rod and overpowered engine, while the 7.6 is a, a wide body 
whale that some people w- would consider it. I'm sure they handle very differently. While as the the NG and the Max were specifically designed to not have any substantial difference like that, but Boeing chose not to pursue a certification like that. It's mind-boggling to me, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, John's article raises, I think, a lot more questions. There has to be an answer. Somebody knows why. Uh, but yeah, exactly. And and who knows who that person is, and and who knows why that decision was made. We don't know yet, but maybe one day, when all of this, when when the the very thick book on all of this gets written, we'll hopefully have an answer there. Let's talk about the orders and deliveries of 2020. Not a great year for anybody. I don't think anyone was expecting it to be. But some bright spots and some numbers that make you go, hmm. Hmm. Uh, Jason, why don't you walk us through uh, the, the top line numbers? Okay. I will start off with Boeing, who in 2020 managed to deliver a total of 157 commercial aircraft. Breaking that down, that is 43 737s, uh, just five 747s. 37 6s, 26 and 53 7 8 7s for once again a total of 153. So, not a, a good year for Boeing, a rather anemic year, but not something anyone wasn't expecting. Honestly, it's impressive that Boeing managed to eke out 4373 deliveries, considering uh, deliveries of the MAX was halted for a majority of the year. 31 of those deliveries came in just the fourth quarter alone. So that's something to smile at, I guess. I'll, you know, I, I think I think they've done a, a, a fairly good job of getting the the max up and up and out the door. You know, it's going to take years for them to deliver the backlog, so they they might as well, you know, get things up and running. Yeah, and a good number of these aircraft were actually not passenger aircraft. They are freighters. I'm sure a majority, if not all, of those 37.6s are likely freighters. All 7.4s were, all five of those were freighters. A bulk of the 777.26 deliveries of those were probably also freighters. Yeah, a lot of freight capacity moving out the door this year. So yeah, that definitely something to to keep an eye on to see how how that develops this year, how quickly they can get up and running with deliveries of the 737 MAX and, and who who ends up taking delivery of of all of these aircraft that they've got sitting around. Yeah. Meanwhile, over in Airbus land, they were able to deliver substantially more aircraft. Again, not surprising, 566. So while a, a larger number than Boeing, still not a, a great year for Airbus, 38 38 A220 family aircraft, 446 A320 family aircraft, the majority of which, 431, were the NEO, uh, 19 A330 family, 13 of which were the NEO, 59 A350 family aircraft, and four, count them, four A380s. Hey, there you go. And they've got, what, uh, three more to go with the A380? A couple more, but I think those will trickle through to 2022. Yeah, very, very, very. So they will be pushed on delivery from the factory. Yeah, nobody's in any rush to take those, which will only be going to Emirates anyway. Yeah, but those were the numbers for Airbus and Boeing. I unfortunately I don't have the numbers for uh, Embraer in front of me, but I, I don't imagine they were all that impressive either. But both Airbus and Boeing took some pretty 
uh, high profile and substantial hits to their order backlog, didn't they, Ian? Yeah, I mean the Boeing backlog is is down. I mean basically down twenty percent. You know, cancellations of seven three seven Max orders are kind of leading leading the way on that one. But uh, some you know some other high profile you know shifting around of uh, you know renegotiations of orders and things like that as well to to kind of downsize them for airlines that don't need those aircraft anymore. And then Airbus took a, a big hit just this week or late last week with their AirAsia order, right? Yeah. AirAsia had a, a fair number of A330neo and, and A350s, I believe, on order. Those will no longer be happening. Those were kind of on, uh, on, on the line for being canceled for quite a bit, but I think that's officially official at this point. Yeah. And so- we kind of start 2021 with uh, not really sure where we're going to go as far as orders are concerned this year. It, it doesn't seem to me like we're going to see any, barring any huge surprises, I don't think we're going to see any blockbuster orders this year. I think this year is probably going to be all about how many planes can we deliver, not how many orders can we take in. For Right, for- which is totally fair. And sorry, yeah. if you hear me laughing in the background, I just saw from a one of the aviation accident sites that oh, a TAM Brazil A320 had a capybara strike. Oh, that's 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 a new one. I have not heard of that. They're so cute. Yeah, the A320 hit uh, already above V1 and hit a capybara on the runway. Continued to nine thousand feet to assess the damage and uh, return to Sao Paulo. So that's uh, that's not a good. new one. Not not good. No. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> Moving on. So, you know, kind of getting back to, to orders and deliveries, we had news this week. I think when Tim Clark was speaking, you know, th- this week about, about Boeing generally, he was also talking about the 777X. And so entry into service for the, the 777X with Emirates, which is supposed to be the launch customer, has now been pushed to 2023. Maybe. Possibly. 2024, 2025. Nobody really knows. Airbus, uh, or excuse me, Emirates had already let the information slip when they were talking about the premium economy delivers on, deliveries on their A380s that uh, will also be introduced on their 777X in 2023. This is an aircraft that was already supposed to have been delivered and flying last June of 2020. And that was already pushed back, I think, from earlier delivery schedules. So this is, we should clarify that there is nothing wrong with the aircraft at this point. It's not a technical issue at this point any longer, at least. Market issue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There were, there right. were yeah. earlier yeah. issues with the engines that had been resolved, but it is just the, the exact wrong time that Boeing would want to roll out its newest, highest capacity 777. Not really a great moment for ultra long, or not ultra long haul, but long haul wide body many hundreds of passenger aircraft not not really their shining moment so yeah it, it'll be really interesting to see if emirates remains the launch customer um, i bet launch. they don't it could it could be lufthansa it could be who else has them on order uh, the list well, is not long notionally cathay does but i don't no. i don't i don't know if that's a phantom order at this point but uh, yeah not not a huge not a huge market for them at the moment not a huge market for the 747 either, but the last four are now spoken for. 
Atlas Air has signed an order for the last four 747-8F aircraft that will ever be produced, and those will also be the final 747s ever produced. Yeah, that, that's that's sad, not unexpected, of course. It had already been announced that the 7-4 line would be closing. This will come in 2022. The So next year, we'll see the last four 7-4s off the line. And that is really going to make Everett, the Boeing facility up in uh, the Pacific Northwest, quite a ghost town, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, so the 747's ending. The 767 order backlog is not huge. 787 Productions moving to South Carolina. So, yeah. Yeah, there's not much going on there at all, which leads to all sorts of interesting possibilities. I mean, one possibility could, of course, be that Boeing packs its bags and leaves Everett entirely, which would be stunning since their operation there is so large, but it opens up a lot of space in the world's largest building to do something else. Yeah. You've got the the 767 line, which, which is in you know inclusive of the, the KC-46 tankers. You've got the 777 and the 777X line, and then you've got who knows what. And I mean, like you said, there are so many possibilities, and hopefully they're you know thinking big, and and the, there will still be something there. But yeah, it, it clearing out effort. I mean, that would just be. I mean, it wouldn't happen right away, but if it did happen at all, that was just. I, a gaping hole in the aerospace industry. Yeah, that that would be unfortunate. I can envision a scenario where possibly 7.3 or the replacement for the 7.3 eventually moves uh, from Renton up to Everett. That seems logical to to me to consolidate operations, but who knows? Yeah, I I do not. If I did, I would, I think, be a very rich man. Speaking of 747s, uh, China Airlines is retiring theirs in three weeks, I believe. The The first week of February is the, the last China Airlines 747 flight. And and you have had the good fortune to fly in the nose of a China Airlines 747, if I am not mistaken. Yeah, I'll be sad to see these go. They have a, a bit of a special place in my heart. I A couple of years ago on a flight to uh, Japan, I I flew China Airlines in premium economy, and they are one of the few airlines where if you connect onto a flight that does not have premium economy, they bump you up to business. And for some reason, I ended up in the nose 1F of a a China Airlines 747 because they no longer sell first class. So they were selling the first class seats as business, and I just kind of wound up there upgrading from premium economy to business and then what used to be first. And that was my only time ever flying in the nose of a 747 will probably be my my last, my first and only time. I was actually booked as an A350, which was why I had premium economy. And I was really kind of upset that they changed it to a 74 because that would have been my first time on a passenger flight on an A350. But in hindsight, I am really glad that that substitution happened. Yeah, that's one of those things where, you know, at the time you're like, ah, this is an older product. I don't know how I feel about it. And there's not much thought to it. But now you're like, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I got to. That, that was great. Wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't trade it for the world. Very, very good. And and they're doing some special flights to mark the occasion. And they have a dedicated website with some very interesting, what seems to be auto-translated language. So we'll toss a link to that in the show notes and and you can go have a have a look at that. Uh, to close out the show, Air Baltic has retired their 737 fleet. 
Yeah, the uh, seven three five was the the seven three seven five hundred again was the uh, the backbone of that fleet along with their dash eights and, and I believe both of those are gone now. Yep, yep, and they are they are an A two twenty airline. So uh, moving, I guess, up in the world, at, sure. at least from you know from an operations perspective, and then Azores Airlines accomplished the longest A321LR flight thus far, besting Air Transat's Montreal to Athens flight with a nonstop flight between Lisbon and Bogota. So quite the flight there. On the outbound, it was, let's see, we have nine hours and uh, 51 minutes from Lisbon to Bogota, and then nine hours and 20 minutes on the return back to Lisbon. So uh, quite the flight there. Yeah, that opens up a whole new realm of possibility, this aircraft for long-haul, narrow-body flying. Like we mentioned earlier, the the future of long-haul, low-cost might be this very aircraft. And and to think there is still a a longer-range aircraft of this aircraft in the XLR version coming soon. And what makes this even more impressive than what Air Transit did is, unfortunately, uh, Air Transit could not make the westbound return against the jet stream. But this flight from Lisbon to Bogota, they were able to do the westbound flight without stopping. Yeah. I mean, no jet stream. That'll do it. Exactly. So there are some definite, very interesting possibilities for this aircraft. Um, We don't know what load it was. Maybe there were five people on board. Maybe there were 200 people on board. Either way, it is very impressive. And at this time, something Boeing can't come close to matching with the MAX. Yeah. Maybe something to to build in Everett that they can- There you go. They'll have room. That is what we have- for the beginning of 2021 and episode 102. Version uh, 2.0. Version 2.0, even better than 1.0, I I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, totally. So we're looking at the start of 2021, not starting off great. Hopefully it can only go up from here. And, you know, we're we're looking forward to maybe by the end of the year saying we're doing the podcast from not our houses and looking forward to some of those things. But uh, we hope everyone has a, a, a good start to the year. Hope everyone is doing well and, and staying healthy. And thank you all so much for listening. This has been episode 102 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.